Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and I am joined by Sarah Jane Bentley and Matt Bianco. Welcome back to the show, guys. Hi, David. Hello. Uh, Matt, welcome back after your one episode absence. How, can you give us the um, the brief summary on Spain and Germany? What do you mean absence? I was there. You guys didn't hear me. Hmm. After all the all the com- all the comments on Facebook about how the audio was so bad, my audio in particular was so bad in the first episode. Uh, I thought it, I thought it better to just pretend I was on the second episode, but it just didn't pick up any of the audio. Nobody would know. Only the silent can hear. It wasn't. It wasn't that they couldn't hear you. It was more like they couldn't understand you. Oh, but but on the other hand, it wasn't everybody. So you know, that's true. That's true. That that's actually kind of bizarre. But whatever. Yeah, it is. Exactly. Um, it's always hard when you can't replicate the problem that someone's experiencing in technology, and then you just pull your hair out trying to figure out what it could possibly be. But that's, of course, why we pay Logan the big bucks. So, he'll, you know, he's helping it's us. Out. Yeah, exactly. But how, what, what's your, uh, what's the, if you can describe Spain and Germany in, in three words, well, how would you describe them? Not the countries in general, but your experiences there. In three words? Yeah, because we don't have a lot of time here. Lovely, beautiful... Are you Googling um, a thesaurus right now? Yeah. Uh, good food. That's two words, but I don't know how to say good food in one word. We'll, so. we'll just go with hyphenated there. Um, we'll just assume that those are hyphenated. Um, what were you can doing ask, there? Yeah, can I ask, why were you there? I was speaking in Spain. I was speaking at, there's a conference there called the European Liberal Arts and Core Texts Conference. And... There were uh, people from all over Europe, uh, quite a few uh, English people, uh, people from England, English people. That's right. Yeah. Um, There's a couple (laughs) of professors from Winchester University. There was a teacher from, uh, uh, he he referred to it, I think, in American terms as a classical charter school. But I don't know what that's called in England, but he called it a classical charter school for my sake um, in East London. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then there was a guy from, there's a professor from a university of, I don't want to say this word out loud, but I have to because I can't spell it for you. I mean, I can't write it for you guys, but Edinburgh, Edinburgh. Yeah. Yeah. Edinburgh. Edinburgh. (laughs) Um, He was a professor there. He was there. And there were people there from all over Germany, Spain, Italy, China. There's somebody there from China. And it's just on, it's just on liberal arts or yeah, cortex and core courses. I can't remember the name of the organization, but that's the name of the conference. And they're there every, they do it every October in Pamplona in, at the University of Navarra in Pamplona, Spain. It was amazing. It was a really good, really good event, really good people and interesting conversations. And um, so I presented a paper there on uh, Plato's Republic and it was fun. Mm. Sounds like something a lot of our listeners would be into if they ever wanted to, you know, take a little uh, educational you know, holiday to, to Europe. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting because it, it's, it's a higher, you know, higher education conference. Like it's all, you know, PhD candidates and college professors, or at least it comes across that way, but then it's not right. There's like ordinary pe- I mean, the, apparently college professors and PhD candidates are also ordinary people like us. And, you know, they like <laughs> reading the same books and talking about the same ideas and, mm. you know, so. Well, if, the ones at this if, conference, anyway. If this book has told us anything about reality, it's that what you just said is not true. Um, <laughs> we probably should just dive into the book. I just want to remind people how they can get in touch, though. Remember, you can join the conversation on the Facebook page. You just search Close Reads Podcast Discussion Group or Close Reads Podcast on the little search bar on Facebook and you'll be able to find that. 
on Instagram and Twitter, you can find us at Close Reads Pods. And of course, you can also email us at closereadspodcasts at gmail.com if you want to email a question or criticism or you know suggest a book or something like that, please feel free to do so. But we are going to discuss chapters 10, 11, and 12 of The Rector of Justin. And I want to start with a question that should get us pretty deep into these into the the waters of these chapters. Um, and as I was reading, particularly I guess twelve, where we are getting you know getting to know Cordelia uh, Prescott's youngest daughter a little bit, I was trying to think. I was thinking about the question of trustworthiness, um, and I was trying to ascertain, I guess, to what degree these various narrators, these various perspectives that we're getting to know Frank Prescott in are trustworthy. Um, Cordelia in particular seems to be, um, you know, a little, uh, like she may not be totally seeing the world in the, (laughs) as it is. Um, and last week, uh, Sarah Jane brought up the question of whether of, of the female characters in this book and, um, whether they are, um, given a little bit of short shrift, so to speak, from uh, by by Auchincloss. So, Sarah Jane, I was wondering if does do, you, do do would you criticize? My question is twofold, I guess. Would you criticize Auchincloss or Auchincloss for his for the way that he is presenting Cordelia? Um, through and let's just let's just limit the conversation to twelve to up through twelve, I suppose. Yeah. Um, or do you do you think that we are purposefully not supposed to completely take her word and you know trust the way she sees the world her characterization is interesting isn't it and so she certainly introduces something new to the novel in that she's um a contrast to prescott Mm -hmm. um almost in rebellion against his um sense of duty servitude um faith in a christian god she's sort of gone in the other direction and presents herself as um, a kind of Freudian enthusiast, if you like. (laughs) Um, And so I thought that her characterization was interesting because she does say contradictory things about her father. Um, Mm -hmm. In chapter 11, she begins speaking to Brian about, um, you know, her father's sort of fiction with, other men and how he doesn't have any interest in women at all and is, is kind of not captivated by female beauty. But then in chapter 12, we find out that in her mm. childhood, her father often flirted with beautiful women to the extent that her mother used to have to go away to Boston for days <laughs> to regain his attention. So you're right. She's not reliable and perhaps the unreliability of her make, makes her more intriguing. I mean, she is a quite an intriguing character. On the one hand, she's this kind of, bohemian um painter who lived in Paris mm-hmm. but then on the other hand she's she's kind of nursing a world war one casualty and, and making lunch for a dad so mm. there, there are some interesting paradoxes in Cordelia mm. she um indicates in in this, her telling the story her own unreliability like she says when she first brings up Charlie's novel, she says, uh, before she's read it, she says, I must have known, this is on page 185, she says, as I look back, I realize that I must have known him very little. Mm. 
perhaps I talk too much. I always have. I thought he was conventionally neurotic, a standard case of post-war despair. And then she goes on. I didn't realize that the difference between somebody who's lost a real faith and somebody who's never had one. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, of course, we find out that even in reading his novel, that she understood him even less, right? Like That's part of her clue, right? How she knows she misunderstood him. So here's somebody that she supposedly loves and yet doesn't, like she can't, she doesn't even know him. Mm-hmm. And then, um, so there's this kind of admission, you know, the self-admission, like, uh, like she's telling us I'm an unreliable source. Uh, but then, but then like kind of the thing that she appears to have resolved herself to, but it obviously bothers her that, that, you know, she and her sisters and her mother were just useful tools to her father. Um, like, like, like she, like she described, you know, in in Mm -hmm. chapter 11, that he wasn't, he wasn't given over to their beauty. Like women were just an outlet and, you know, this, this the usefulness but then but then you discover that that's basically what charlie is to her like she's Mm. she i mean she basically admits that she's using him in an attempt to shock her parents and it failed which reminded me and i think this came up in our first our first recording but um but uh i don't know if if i was comprehensible in that when i said it (laughs) um but on page 33 all the way back on page 33 Harriet tells um, Brian at the very bottom of page 33, she says, my daughters have suffered terribly from frustration Mm. because they couldn't shock me. How mean of me it was as I look back. Mm. Um, And then, and then we, and then we encounter a Cordelia in chapter 12, who's telling the story of when she tried to shock her parents and it failed and how mean that was. Mm. Like even when she says that, when when she when she describes his very the very first words that he says when he walks into her apartment in Paris and Charlie's in the bedroom changing, and and then he acts like nothing's wrong and she says he was he was it was like he was playing a joke on me. Mm. Mm. She's a, a slightly isolated character, isn't she? In that sense as well, in that. Perhaps you're right that she doesn't just not only misunderstand Charlie, but she doesn't really understand her father or her mother either. She often seems to be in competition with them. Mm. Um, and perhaps this is a symptom of the way in which Justin Martyr has consumed her father's attention. Mm. And, and one way in which she tries to get his attention after failing to do so by marrying a, a sort of Catholic monk is to um, shack up with the top prize-winning athlete from the school and then then it becomes a bit of a a a contention for Prescott's attention between Cordelia and Charlie at one point she says something like Charlie wouldn't share my father anymore she has to go off to Venice with her mother (laughs) um and then that's the last time she sees him mm. she doesn't she doesn't get to spend any more time with him she kind of runs away in a sense uh from she runs it's as if she's afraid herself to have to to share him like you know she says that she she kind of makes the case that charlie won't share her father and her father won't share charlie but then she is also not so not willing to share him herself that she just runs away and then she doesn't see him again because they they go so far they go to such a remote place that they can't that no communications can get get to them it's like they keep going farther and farther and farther until until he dies i I find that kind of 
fascinating and obviously sad. But one of the things that's interesting is that the first time we ever meet her, there's like one primary theme to the conversation she has with Aspenwall in Eleven. And she, she, she kind of talks about the idea of psychoanalysis mm-hmm. where she's like, you know, this concept of how do you know yourself? And, you know, he, she, you know, he, she basically is like, were you ever psychoanalyzed? That's a shame. It says, and she makes these grand claims as if she knows who she is. She knows who she is. But then it turns out she doesn't really know anything most of the time. Um, and it seems like this is a, this is con- because we're getting all these different perspectives. The question of how much you can actually know a person it seems to be at yes. the heart of everything we're getting so far. And then how much do you know yourself? And, and how, do you, how do you know yourself? When, it, when can you trust your, yourself? When can you trust your own emotions, your own perspectives, your own fears? Um, when can you trust whether you're actually being good or being rotten? You know? And then how can you tr- trust when another person is being good or rotten? That seems to be you know, the, those kind of doubts. And, and then how do, you, how do you have faith in another person? Not just how do you have faith in God, but faith in, in other people seems to be a key, key core question here. And for her, it's, you know, it's all driven up in, it's, it's all wrapped up or, or driven by Freud and then maybe young a little bit. And, you know, she, she, Darwin, she drops the name of Darwin. Her mother taught her about Darwin. And it seems like she's constantly turning to these different sources to try to know herself and to know other people because for whatever reason that she's not, had the had faith in the way that Charlie does or her parents do. And so she turns to those other things. Go ahead. I think yeah. Sarah Jane, you're going to say something. Do you remember your father's lectures teaching from a state of rest? One thing he says in there that's really <laughs> that is stuck a complicated question. It's really stuck with me. He says, he says that if we don't believe in truth, then we do two things. We, we teach people to uh, get power and emotionally manipulate people. And Cordelia seems to be a character who has um, lost any hope in, in there being truth. And, and Paris as a setting also seems, seems to further that idea that Paris is almost illusory. And um, she's obviously very emotionally manipulative. It's the first thing she tries to do to Brian. And in a way, the, the fame and prestige of her father is a means of gaining power um, over other people, at least. And when there in Paris, Charlie has really lost his sense of reality. And when Prescott comes and knocks on the door and he's singing the kind of opening songs of La Boheme, I love him at that moment. Um, he comes back and he says, no, Pres- Justin Martyr was real, um, you know, definitely existed. And in that, that moment, he really seems to represent truth in the novel and brings both of them back to reality in a way and, and says to Cordelia, you know, is this your painting? It's great, but uh, the lemon could do with perking up a bit. <laughs> and she realizes her father's right. And there's a sort of dispelling of some of this mythology with the arrival of Prescott in Paris. I, there's a lot he of. Did, talk- he describes something. Sorry. No, go. He, he describes. He says something in that in that scene there, um, in the in his conversation with Charlie, that I think is. It hits on what you're saying because he says to Charlie on page 188, Cordy has her motives for not wanting me to be real. Every child has, but parents are not that easily destroyed. We continue to exist if for no other reason that that then that we may be able to help our children's friends. And I thought like you could take that exact paragraph and change it out with, change it out with the idea of God. And it's still true. Right. Yeah. 
It, it links really closely to Freud as well, doesn't it? Because so many Freudian theories are about children trying to destroy their parents in some way. Mm-hmm. And has there ever been a, I was thinking about this, has there ever been a, a play that is more analyzed from a Freudian perspective than the King Lear? Or is any of Shakespeare's yes. work been written about more from that perspective? Maybe Hamlet, but you know, if you, if you Google, if you just Google literary theories on King Lear, you're going to get a lot, a lot of Freudian, a lot of Freudian stuff. That's something else that Cordelia brings to the novel. I mean, she, she overtly makes a joke about her being the third daughter and being called Cordelia and Mm -hmm. chapter 12 begins and ends with these very overt references to Lear. And um, Griscom in, in previous chapters talks about how Prescott is now entering this new hardened phase of his character. And we seem to move from Hamlet to Lear. Hmm. Yeah. 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 We talked, yeah, we did talk about the, the, uh, the sort of last week we talked mad about the, how Prescott, young Prescott in some ways has a sort of Hamlet. He's a sort of Hamlet light character, even where he has the vision of his father's ghost and all that. And everyone's spying on him in, in Justin master. Yeah. Everyone's yeah. observing him. Yeah. Oh, that's good. You, you, guys mentioned like the, that. you mentioned the moment also where, um, I think this ties into the Hamlet, Hamlet a little bit too, and I'll see if I can make a connection here. Um, Sarah Jane, you mentioned how he walks into their apartment and he makes this sort of quick little criticism of her painting. And she's, you know, she says, you know, Oh, he was right too. <laughs> of course he knew exactly what the, the painting needed. Um, and there's a lot of talk in these three chapters about the idea of, of criticism, the sort of concept of it. Yes. I Being think, critic. Yes. Yeah. Is it in, it's in 11 where Brian's talking about his, his conversation with Griscom and let's see if I can find it. Griscom talks about, Oh, where is it? Griscom's talking about criticism. Um, the job of the critic. Oh, this is, this is super good radio to listen to people try to find a spot in a book. Um, <laughs> You can also put a thumb in page 193 where Cordelia says the shallow artist is apt to make the best critic. And I was a shallow artist. And this is when we get Mm. a whole paragraph of um, sort of literary criticism, really, on Charlie's manuscript. So you've got a lot of narrative layering here. You've got a text within a text and Cordelia's opinions of Charlie are being reported to us by Brian. Oh, yeah. I don't know if that links to what you were saying about Griscom. Was it about some some of his Elizabethan collection? Yeah, it, yeah, but I yeah, but I don't. I can't make. I can't remember what the spot is. And I and I think I read this in the middle of the night when I didn't have a pen, so I probably didn't mark it. <laughs> but there's the bit. There is the bit on one seventy five where um, Cordelia and and Brian are talking for the first time before he's started recording her conversation. This is. Um, before she's decided to lie down with on the on the couch with a drink and you know talk um but it's the bit where where um that you mentioned where um she says i'll tell you my theory about pa it's not freudian it's youngian i believe that pa is an archaic type i throw back to the ancient greeks he's always looked down on women you have to have been his daughter to know how much they don't really exist for him except to satisfy a man's physical needs bear his children and keep his house this this is the bit that you guys were talking about and i was thinking about is this alkin sort of mocking his readers and his critics 
like saying his daughter is saying he's an archetype, which is exactly how most people are going to read the book, right? We're going to read Prescott as this sort of archetypal figure. And, but does, does, and this is his daughter saying it, but of course it would be his daughter who, who, who says it, right? Who doesn't, who only sees him in some ways as an archetype, whereas other people might see him as a real character. And so I was thinking about is, is this Auchincloss or Auchincloss or whatever is, is he sort of mocking the way most people are going to read this character when he, when he has this come out of his daughter's mouth? Because, and then later on, he goes into her apartment and knows exactly the right thing to say to criticize. It seems like there's a sort of fraught relationship with the concept of criticism itself in the book, because Mm -hmm. sometimes, you know, some characters are mocking critics like an author might. And there's, you know, there's even little lines here and there, but of course it's the the half, the halfway artist, the the mediocre artist that becomes a good critic. Right. Um, There's something tyrannizing about Frank in this regard. Uh, On the one point, it is kind of funny that she, she doesn't call him an archetype. She calls him an archaic type. Which well, true, is, true. is itself kind of a funny slip, right? But she probably meant it intentionally. Uh-huh. Um, but we think we read, I mean, like we almost automatically kind of change the word to our archetype because that's what we understand. I mean, if there's any familiarity with Young, anyways, right? That's we understand that that's what he would have, how he would have been using it, I think. So, um, but, but, anyways, like, like he, Frank apparently has. With, with I, perhaps the exception of Horace, and, but not even always true there, ha- has this really, really great, I guess, ability to see exactly into the thing, right? See, like looking at a painting and very quickly being able to see the lemon needs freshening up or whatever. Um, but also with, with Griscom, right? The, mm. the Griscom says, I want to be a teacher. And then he says, I mean, kindly, I suppose, but... Uh, but but he directs Griscom away from teaching mm. because he knew exactly what it what that meant for Griscom, right? Like I think the passage says he didn't want any escape escapists um, yeah. or escapism, you know, in his school, and he was right. And but Griscom is hurt by that, right? In the same way that Cordelia is annoyed by it, and um, in all of the in, in all the situations, right? He kind of there's this kind of tyrannizing. I don't know. Like it, 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 it angers us. It so, so you're saying he's he he's the critic in the sense that he is telling the truth. He's telling people what they need to hear in the moment, but that that to hear criticism is a painful thing. Yeah, we and don't thus, like it. There's a sure. sort of tyrannizing effect when you're told the truth. Mm-hmm. Be- that someone who can tell the truth repeatedly becomes sort of tyrannical in a sense. Mm-hmm. Well, which is which is which is interesting to me because in in David Hicks' Norms and Nobility, which you know, begins with this opening reference to the rector of Justin. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, there's a chapter in there called the tyrannizing image. And the idea is that there are these, he, I don't think he used the word archetypes, but there are these archetypes. He's, he just says types. There are these or ideal types. I think he says um, there are these ideal types that themselves tyrannize us because they are, they, I mean, they put a burden on, on us to be that like, to be courageous in the way that that archetype is courageous. If he's, if it's an archetype of courage, right. Whatever mm-hmm. it is. Um, and now, and now here's this reference to Frank being this archaic type or this archetype and the, the criticism that comes from the type tyrannizes us. It frustrates us. It aggravates us. It annoys us. It, 
Yes, because it sets, it sets a standard that either you have to attain or you have to reject. And, and if you're going to reject it, then you kind of need to, you need to provide an alternative. <laughs> but either way, it requires something of you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, yes, maybe you're right. I liked what you said, David, about that sort of metafictional reference by Auchincloss telling us how we should or shouldn't read his characters. The thing about Cordelia is that she is also always looking for some sort of ideal type or archetype, and she looks to literature and art for inspiration or for role models. Because um, I hope I'm not saying anything uh, incorrect here, but the, the, the sense is that women can't really be like Prescott. She needs a different role model, and she finds her mother rather, rather plain and hmm. uh, rather too subsumed by the the Justin Martyr role of housemaster's wife, um, headmaster's so, wife. Can, can I ask you a question about that? Do you think that that is? I didn't get the sense that she was being fair to her mother. Would you? Do you think that that's that that is that I am wrong in that assessment? No, I think she's unfair to her mother and her father, and and that Alkinclos as you say, shows her to be sort of unreliable and a poor judge of character. And yet at the same time, the introduction of Cordelia in some ways keeps, as with other characters in the book, keeps us it, it from being too purely a hagiography, to borrow the term that you used, Matt. Mm. It's true. Because it, 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 it doesn't, you know, we cannot trust entirely Griscom. We cannot trust entirely Cordelia. And yet we can still, you know, you know, we can be with, we can, we can, we can along with Brian Aspinall realize, okay, maybe he's not, you know, maybe they, he did have some flaws, you know, no man is perfect. Even, <laughs> even a archaic type, like, like, like yeah. uh, Frank. It's kind of funny because that we we get introduced to Cordelia and then she puts out all these criticisms and we reject them because she's kind of whiny and or whatever and, and unreliable and annoying. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I think what we didn't read that far, but it, it gets worse. I think um, the, uh, and yeah, and yeah, that's not why, that's not why we know that Frank has flaws, like not because of what she says about him, but if anything, we know that Frank has flaws because of the, because of the way she turned out. Exactly. <laughs> right? Yes. Like not because of her words, but because of her behavior. Exactly. And yet he, Frank still goes to find her and Charlie in Paris. Um, she feels very marginalized by his visit though, because she seems to think that it's just about um, Frank trying to save Charlie's soul before he dies. But we learn that he's, her father has written to her repeatedly. She calls it soliloquizing. And she's lost in this sort of impressionistic, uh, romantic world of Rossetti portraits and Keatsian heroes. And uh, yeah, I think that the Auchincloss does position the reader to desire her to have this kind of reality check that probably only her father can give her. And you are both, you guys are both right that she, mis- that she misrepresents her mother too, because... I mean, even when she starts spending time in Paris with her mother and she thinks of her mother as this very not Parisian person, and yet her mother very quickly takes over her Parisian scene, right? Like 
Yeah, she fits she, in so easily. Yeah, and then Cordelia is on the outside. In fact, there, isn't there the one the one person that says, um, "You Americans, you you're either you're either ashamed or proud that you live on the wrong side of the Atlantic, but not your mother. Your mother is a true." Uh, what is internationalist? I think. I think the person yes, does. Page one ninety four. Yes. Yeah, and then Cordelia's like, which meant I wasn't. Mm. <laughs> and yeah. then she's like her father after that because she suddenly Cordelia becomes the Philistine, which is usually the epithet reserved for. for Prescott. Oh right, right. Oh, she becomes like her father. Yeah. <laughs> the, this Alkin class, he's clever. The the bit where he walks in there into the apartment and just quickly mentions the lemon is fascinating to me. We've mentioned it a few times and Sarah Jane, you mentioned that that did you say that was you like him the best in that moment or something like that? Well he's sort of sarcastically singing the tune from Lambo M walking in on these bohemians with a bunch of groceries, you know, stuff from the real world. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting because the, the lemon thing works on so many different levels. Cause as you say, he walking in the room with groceries, um, which in a sense could, could be read, you know, you can understand her thinking this is feeling a little condescended that he's walking in with groceries. Like she's a college student who can't take care of herself and needs someone yeah. to buy groceries for her. Right. Or she doesn't have any money or something like that. And then on the other hand, it is bringing in the real world. It's bringing in the natural world. And she ostensibly thinks that she's living in this real, this, the real world. Right. But he brings in a bag of real, you know, tactile, physical elements of the real oh, world. And he brings right. that into their home. But then on the other hand, it, the lemon is something that he can criticize and he can notice the exact specific thing that, that she needs to fix in the poem. But it's also something that could easily have been in the bag, especially if they're going to make, you know, cocktails or something. <laughs> and then, uh, but then on the other hand, a lemon is a very like, um, you know, he, he says that it would, what does he say? What's his exact language that it would, spruce up the poem or give the poem some life or something like that. If she can get, if she can, um, no, no, the, it's, he, a paint, it's a painting. painting yeah, sorry. That it, it needs to the, the, the bring in, up. I think he says, yeah, bringing the, the lemon to life will perk up the poem or something like that. But mm-hmm. that's also something that a lemon does in cooking. So say you're making a succotash or something like that, or something with vegetables, oftentimes a, a little, little bit of lemon juice, you know, you squeeze a little lemon over it can, can bring, the vegetables that have been cooking back to life themselves. Um, and so in some ways that's kind of what his purpose is as soon as he walks in the door there in the context of the novel, the narrative purpose, you know, but also his own purpose is to bring to life this, this character and Charlie yes. who has been, you know, pardon the stretch of the metaphor, but has been yeah. cooked, you know, mm. and, and there's a joke here as well. I think in that, you know, the Dutch masters painted still life. And mm. now in the, where are we with the 1930s in France? Is that right? Yeah. Twenties, thirties, yeah, something like that. It's after yeah, they're, World War One. They're now painting dead nature. And what Prescott says is, is a total rejection of that. He says, you really need to make it a bit more alive, <laughs> which is not the point of these uh, nature or whatever they're called. Um, so he kind of dismisses in a way that the whole, that whole tradition of painting says mm. it should be more like still life rather than death. But um, what you were saying earlier about the characters being really hard to pin down because we're getting all these different conflicting and unreliable accounts of them. There's another one here of Prescott where Charlie seems to be haunted by 
the paralyzing vision of his old headmaster in the pulpit, his hand and forefinger outstretched. That's on page 183. And this kind of looms over Charlie. But then as soon as Prescott comes into their apartment, he says, I'm not the old blood and thunder type of parson. (laughs) (laughs) And totally contradicts this this image that Charlie has constructed of Prescott. And is then very tender to him and sits with him on a bench and talks to him about his faith. So it is it is difficult for the reader in, in the novel. I, I think that Auchincloss does make us do a certain amount of detective work. And I think that uh, that, that motif or trope of detective work is also quite significant in the novel, starting with the reference to the Wilkie Collins novel, The Moonstone. Mm. Oh, yeah, that's uh, that was in the first bit, right? Yeah, because I don't know if this is something you, you saw as well, Matt, that in a way, part of the novel quite often is a bit like a detective story. So Frank is the subject of Brian's investigation. Um, Cordelia here is almost like a witness who's who's either giving um, helpful information or red herrings. Earlier in this particular section that we're looking at today, we've had a almost like a mock court scene. Yeah, cross-examination. Uh, yeah, cross-examination where they're trying to find out who it was that hid the Latin trot in in the desk of the other boy mm-hmm. and there is a, there is a certain amount of detective work going on that the reader has to do to try and figure out you know what what is the truth what is the truth about prescott that that oh, that's interesting and that that latin trot scene is important I, I think because there's a sense in which i mean okay so the whole thing is t- turns out to be a big farce in multiple directions, right? Like, like it becomes so confusing that we're not even really sure which is the real version. Like, did he actually hide it? Did he not hide it? Um, like, I mean, there's a conclusion that's drawn, but but do we even really know? Um, is the I mean, like, how smart is this 16 year old kid that keeps changing the story on us? And is how manipulative is he being? We don't even know. And then and then in the end, of course, you find out that Frank heard rumors but didn't talk about them and didn't want like he didn't want to know he didn't want to ask chap- the question yeah mm. because then then that chapel now becomes uh an image of you know falsehood or whatever and it'd be something he couldn't he couldn't respect but then how much of that is us too like how much of it is we don't really want frank to be anything other than this great headmaster. That's right. Page 164, um, I think actually the structure of the novel here really plays in powerfully to what you just said, in that it end, page 164, chapter 10, ends on a question from Harriet, who's covering for her husband. How do you think he could live with it if he thought it had been built on a lie? And that, that question is never answered. <laughs> it's just, that's the end of the chapter. And that's um, the right in the middle of the heart of the book, right? That's, yeah. that's the halfway point, basically. And the point is that the, the donation he accepts is for the chapel as well. Mm-hmm. So then the chapel itself is built on a lie, which is rather dark. I was thinking, I got, you know, that, like you said, that chapter kind of ends there. So you, you kind of, you know, have, you can't help but stop and think about it. Um, and you kind of have to supply the answer because obviously it hasn't been, hasn't been given to you, or at least you have to think about the answer. And so I got to thinking if the chapel was built on a lie, would it matter? Should, should Prescott 
be conflicted about the building of the chapel that the chapel has built on a lie. Say 30 years later, he finds out that it was built on a lie or he finds out, you know, that Griscom finally reveals what he knows. Um, or he spends enough, Prescott spends enough time to think about it and realizes the truth. Does it matter? Should he be conflicted about it? Well, I think that's a question that headmasters must have to deal with all the time. Because um, as we see earlier in Griscom's account, around page 149, he's raising donations and Prescott is deeply and vehemently opposed to donations that come with little provisos and expectations. Mm-hmm. And um, even Griscom says sometimes he was perfectly right as when he ushered to the door without further ceremony, a man who had offered him $50,000 to admit his delinquent son to the school. So I think that is a, a question of um, morality and principles that a headmaster is always having to deal with. You know, is, say, I don't know, a Chinese billionaire offered a kind of blank check for... Um, for the school so that then the school could go needs blind forever. Um, but the proviso is that, I don't know, Chinese and Confucianism must be taught as a, a mandatory subject to all students. It, what do you say? <laughs> and I, th- I think headmasters are always challenged by these kind of questions where they're being offered something with one hand, but something's being taken away with the other. And Prescott has to be principled. Whereas Griscom is, it's not about principles for Griscom. It's about his project. It's a mission for Prescott. It's a project for Griscom. Yeah, that's, that's good. Cause Griscom's, uh, I don't know. He's oily. He's unctuous. Mm. He's, he drives me, he, he annoys me. Like I, I made a note at the end of, um, actually, I think I made it at the end of chapters nine and 10. The chapters are his notes. I wrote, who is this about? Because yes. you know, on page 126, he says, the bottom 126, he's too afraid, Frank is, is too afraid that I'd make myself the real hero of this book about mm-hmm. about Frank. But I wouldn't have Aspinwall. I swear I wouldn't. I wanted to write that book. I wanted to write it more than I wanted anything in years. And then he's, but he's, he, there he is declaring, I would never, this would not have been about me. It would have been about, it would have been about Frank. And then in the two chapters that are based on his notes, I feel like, yeah, I'm learning something about Frank, but I'm really learning about Grissom. Well, I asked, I think to start, Grissom, right? to start the show last week, I asked, well, how, how did I put it, Sarah Jane? I think I asked the question of, you know, who, who is this book really about? Yes. I mean, is it about Frank or is it about these people that are coming in contact with Frank? Mm. Because even Brian, he says at the beginning of one of the chapters last week, um, I had written in this journal because it was supposed to be all about Frank, but then they're never really all about Frank <laughs> to, to your point. Even when Brian's writing, even right. when Brian Aspinall, it's not just about, you know, does, um, does that go back to the mystery though? Right. Like mm-hmm. we, the uh, we determine who Frank is mm. by detectiving that detecting, detectiving, <laughs> detecting that out of these, these people that have run into Frank. Yeah, and I don't know how theological Alcatraz or we want to get about it, but I wonder as well whether there's something going on here about the difference between faith and idolatry or faith in a real God and faith in an idol because so often Prescott is confused with or... Um, Outright called. God, yes. And then each individual wants to create that God in their own image to make Prescott into what they want him to be. And Griscom is particularly guilty of that. So... 
the novel does seem to interrogate the difference between faith in a true transcendent God and, and an idol. Yeah. Uh, 183 Cordelia is talking. Um, we'll start with the bottom of 182. Charlie and I sat on his terrace till early morning talking about what yeah. was real and what was sham. Charlie had become very intense and passionate about finding what he called some clean little rag of truth in the dirty laundry of the world. Mm-hmm. What he wanted to know of me was whether or not the pre-war Cordelia Prescott had been real. Had we actually existed, I and my sisters in those quaint, far-off Justin days? For if we had if for if we had existed, then perhaps Justin had existed, and of course Pa too. And how could he reconcile Pa and God? For Pa was God, I suppose, with what he had seen in the trenches. And then of course later on, Prescott comes and tells, you know, tells him Justin was real, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, sorry. Well, and he says, and he says, God is real as well. I think doesn't he to Charlie? Go on, Matt. Well, that line where she quotes Charlie, and he and and, and Brian writes it in quotation marks. Some mm-hmm. clean little rag of truth in the dirty laundry of the world. It, that's what we're doing. We're trying to find some clean little rag of truth out about Frank in the dirty laundry of the world that is coming in contact with him. Mm. That's right. Page 163, there's more um, a kind of murkiness or, or mudging of the waters around Prescott, where Amy, Griscom's daughter, it, it kind of claims Justin Martyr for her father. She oh, says, that's right, yeah. Um, oh, school, yeah. It's, it's where Brian is talking to Amy. She says, well, you could say that Justin Martyr is um, Prescott School, but, you know, who raised the money? Who built this? There's 161. So 171, that's it. Yeah, 170-71. She says, Prescott had the initial idea, I grant, but who raised the endowment fund? Who doubled the enrollment? Who instituted the exchange of masterships and brought the finest minds to the school? And um, she she tries to claim, really, that it is now her father's um, architecture. And, and perhaps that's what you were saying earlier, Matt, about Griscom always wanting to make it about him, how he has to be the hero. And, and his daughter buys right into it. And not yeah. just Justin Martyr either, but actually the very legend of Frank Prescott is the pinnacle of her, of daddy's work, she says. Yes. Well, look opposite that on 170. It really starts at the bottom of 169. But at the top, uh, there's a conversation between uh, Sylvester, right? Hmm. Jim, No, Jim Copperley, um, who, who says, you know, he is God. Uh, interestingly... Part, so yeah, you know. again, Doctor oh, Prescott right. is the nearest man to God on earth. God yeah. damn it, man, he is God. Yeah, yeah, I was gonna say that's a really interesting phrasing there. You know, pardon the uh, the 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 French as people say, but he says, "God damn it, man, he is God." Like mm. that phrasing there, that sentence bracketed with God on either end, with the swear word in the middle, is kind of a fascinating bit there. There's like a lot of complicated logic in that sentence, um, and some theological implications too. Um, going on there and and then and then there's another bit there at the bottom 183 what i was reading there's it says um yet for all my chatter this is cordelia yet for all my chatter for all my efforts to liberalize his thinking after our first night together charlie solemnly took my hand and in his hand and told me that in the eyes of god if there was a god we were now man and wife and then later on there's the conversation about whether they're man and wife with prescott who has been associated with God. And he says, you're obviously not married. Definitely not. Yeah. yeah. And so there's all these 
different logical leaps of if he's God, then what does that mean? And in the eyes of God, this being true. And then um, the question of God damning someone, you know, like if you literally, if you take that word literally and not just as sort of a curse word, you know, exclamation, you know, the, the, the question, the logic and the questions of what it means if Prescott is God based on what he thinks and then what it means if he's not God, it's all very convoluted, but also very interested. It's interesting at the same time. And all the characters are so confused about it. Mm. Page 170, 171 are, a good place to go for a discussion of the nature of Prescott. Um, one thing that interested me was how there's the sort of veneer of Prescott as, as an idol for the boys in the school. Um, and yet it's Sylvester, I think, who says, few of the old Justinians seem to have any feeling that his principles should have a continuing validity in their lives. Uh, that it's, right. they will want to have been in contact with Prescott, but the idea that they would actually emulate him and live like him uh, doesn't doesn't seem to carry through, and that's that's very sad. And there's another moment I can't remember where it is where Prescott says, "I know you like to think of Justin Martyr as a school that's just a sort of uh, load of buildings shrouded in the mist of the headmaster's platitudes, but for me, it's not that. It's it really is true." And um, there's. <sighs> But it, there's, there's a sense that he's almost like a souvenir. Prescott is like a souvenir or a relic that people, once they've enjoyed looking at it, can then discard. And I think the novel tries to show us that he, despite all of the corrupted individuals who have gone through his school, he has had a lasting and virtuous influence on some of them. It, it's very, I, I think you've been saying this and I've just been picking up on it as clearly as I should have Sarah Jane, but I think that, that that it's interesting because the way that he is God is also the way God is God in our world. Like yeah. these same even even these same things could be said, right? That few of the old Christians seem to have any feeling that God's principles should have a continuing validity in their lives. Mm. I find it upsetting, right? And it, that, that same sort of thing, right? There are like people like Brian who want, you know, God to be somebody for, for us. He, he wants God for Christians to be somebody that we look to for knowing what to do in all of every aspect of our lives. Um, and then, or as, as the, uh, the great Kanye West just recently said, I'm a Christian in everything. I'm a Christian in everything. Um, and, and Brian wants that, want, Brian wants Prescott to be that for everybody in the same way, you know, there are people who want God to be that for everybody, but then he realizes that Prescott's not that way for everybody. Right. Mm. Few of his principles, you know, continuing for, for some, for these people. And, and he's, it, well, he's always being made to compromise. Prescott, and maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I've been reading about the Levites recently and how they had to kind of guard the tabernacle and keep it pure. And to do that, they were ruthless. And and often Prescott's idea of how discipline should be uh, enforced is quite extreme. Like he thinks the boys should be expelled for using the trot and Griscom's kind of thinking, well, you know, come on, we've, we've moved on from that now. It's not that serious. But obviously plagiarism is serious if the thing you believe in first and foremost is truth. And... Mm-hmm. Uh, Prescott doesn't want to compromise that, but throughout the novel we see that as kind of modernity and the the notion of progressivism comes into the novel, he's he's being forced to compromise on things which in his principles he really can't let go. 
And like that's tennis. Quite sad. Like tennis, exactly. <laughs> Everyone should Baseball. play rugby. Well, it's yeah, interesting. Not rugby, it's football, sorry. Yeah, American football. It's interesting that um, you mentioned though. You mentioned that though because I think there's a. I think that's ironic, or at least there is an irony at the heart of the novel, given what you're saying. Because as it shows at the bottom of 170, what everybody resents about him is the way he dwarfs people. Mm. You know, he's talking to uh, Amy Griscom, Brian is, and it says, she says it's never been, or he, he asks her, did you like him as your brother does? Or do you feel that like your mother, that his influence on the Griscoms is not altogether for the good? And she says, it's never been a question of my liking him. I didn't have to like or dislike him. I wasn't a boy, but I certainly resented him. And then Brian asks a really interesting question because your father admired him as if to say, because he admired him so much that like he didn't give you enough attention or something like that. And then her response is no, because he dwarfed daddy. You know what they used to say of Teddy Roosevelt, that he was like a magnificent plain tree, plain tree, that nothing grew in his shade. Well, Dr. Prescott is that way. Mm. Um, and, and so on the one hand, yeah, as you're, as you're saying, he's always having to, uh, what was the word you used? compromise he's always having to compromise yeah my brain just fell apart there for a second he's always having to (laughs) compromise and yet he is this larger than life figure you know to use a colloquialism i suppose yeah dwarfs other people and they and almost everybody resents him for that including cordelia you know griscom they all look at him and they admire him but they people admired him so much that then they resent him Mm. yeah (sighs) The, the the interesting simile that comes after that then is is where amy compares prescott to a broadway star as if he's acting and -hmm. as if she's seen behind the scenes and i wondered what you both thought of that i i was i was going to comment on that actually because i i um i remember having a conversation uh david with your dad about about Mm postmodernism and he was he was commenting my dad about postmodernism yeah, yeah, because well, he's your dad's kind of like the um, archetype of postmodernism, so the <laughs> 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 total misrepresentation, obviously. But just in case for those listeners who who know about close reads through close reads and not through Andrew Kern and Cersei, that that's a joke. Um, she wears anyway. bow ties, so that that's a <laughs> statement against postmodernism. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so the conversation we had about television shows and commercials and movies on TV where there's like, like they show you the behind the scenes of Mm. the commercial. Like a Brecht play. Like a what? Like a Brecht play. I don't know that term. It's where the the play starts, but you, you see people running around on the stage, setting up the lights and fixing the mic levels. And you're never quite sure at what point the play's actually started. What's what's not. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Exactly like that. It sounds like, and yeah. and Andrew's comment was that that the the reason we see so much of that today is because it makes the postmoderns feel like they know something because they're mm-hmm. not being you know cheated by the acting. Um, they they can see what's really going on behind the then scenes, you, what's really happening. They feel like they know something. They're, they're not willing to suspend their disbelief, because that requires a submission to somebody else's vision of reality. Right. Right. That's such a good way of saying it too. And, and, and as a result, they actually miss out on real knowledge Mm. of a thing, but they don't even realize it because they've convinced themselves that they have the actual real knowledge because they got the behind the scenes. 
Yeah, and, and, and a lot of C.S. Lewis's experiment and criticism is about that, isn't it? And how to be a, a good reader, not a bad reader. Yeah, and then and he has that line too about no, yes, yes. I don't want to go pass by that too quickly. Actually, right, that's a good point. And the and the submission part of reading, um, but then he has that line too. Like if you can see through everything, then you can see nothing. Uh, that's mm. very very badly misquoted or misparaphrased. But there's something like you know, he has this line along. Who's he? Lewis has a line along those lines. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and there's even in, in, um, what's his, what's his, um, his allegory. Um, C.S. <laughs> Lewis, which his one. Yeah. Yeah. Right. No, the one, the one, the, the, um, the bunion, the one, the one that's like Pilgrim's bunions. Regress. Pilgrim's Regress. Thank you. Okay. And, and, and in there, there's like a scene where, where, uh, John goes and he encounters this creature that you, and he's talking about like you can see into the belly, the stomach of the of the person and see what's being the digestion process and the eating and the food and all that stuff. Uh, and, and, and again, like there's this sense in which that's real knowledge, not, not actually, you know, participating as an act of submission in the thing, but being able to see through all of that. It appears when I read this passage, because of all of that, those thoughts, I read this passage as, Perhaps Alkin causes criticism of that kind of postmodern belief about knowledge, right? That yeah, uh, through through Amy, because Amy, because of the way Amy's presented to us in that moment, and but I mean in the whole, in this whole section, and yet Alkin Kloss in writing the novel in this way has rejected the sort of authority of maybe a kind of Victorian narrator who is omniscient and whose opinion can be trusted, and he has given us a sort of deconstructed. Um, narrative frame, if you like, hasn't he? Where we're, we're kind of, right. as you say, looking around through the dirty laundry, trying to find some scrap of truth. But and, uh, is it, is it a well, criticism of it, though, or is it? Yeah, maybe. Well, that, think, because it shows you can never properly know Prescott. Because well, everyone's think, being obsessed with themselves. Should we? Should we? Should we let David talk? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, <laughs> I've been thinking a lot about. Like I, maybe it's a chicken and egg situation here, um, because on the one hand, we're we're talking about <laughs> we're getting into some complicated <laughs> questions because I, you know like the, the question of postmodernism and the way people construct narrative and things like that now are they doing that because of some sort of you know questions about the way people can know truth and whether truth exists and things like that. And thus they turn to new ways of telling stories because you can't know the truth. And so narrative structure and narrative form and all those things don't matter. Or did that come out of some sort of um, predisposition or obsession with finding new ways to tell stories that then led to a, that, that sort of because of their inherent formal nature led to a rejection of truth like which comes first did we reject truth and then turn to new ways of telling stories or did the human desire for telling stories lead people to try to come up with something new that then became the thing that poisoned the well so to speak mm. a lot of metaphors yeah i, I think it's, it's difficult to extrapolate it as well from what was happening in the world in 1918 that there had been a loss of faith and that often, you know, culture is kind of downstream of 
belief and worship. And when those things go, then then we see the art start to break up. And and I would say that Alkin Kloss's novel is not a postmodern novel. It's a modern novel in the same way that The Wasteland is, where there's, there's still a hope or a belief that truth exists somewhere. It's just now much harder to find because everything got blown up. Well, and, well, and, and the Victorian, you know, you mentioned the sort of subversion or uh, deconstruction of, say, the Victorian form. Yeah. And, and there's, you know, <laughs> you said it in a way that was sort of like, that was a negative thing. But on the one hand, and, I, and I'm not saying that you, you were, but... Um, Per se, but on this, on the one hand, to suggest <laughs> that to suggest I do that, always sound very critical. Sorry, <laughs> but to suggest that you know that inherently deconstructing or subverting those are kind of you know bad words among classical educators. Right. But to suggest that to deconstruct the Victorian form is an inherently bad thing is to presuppose that the Victorian form is some sort of pure form of narrative, right? And maybe it was just the form that was pure for the time that it was born in. I mean, the, the, yeah. the, the, the Victorian novel in and of itself is in some ways a deconstruction of Elizabethan drama, or, which is a sort of, in some ways, a response to, or if we have to say, deconstruction of ancient drama. And then that, you know, you can, yes. narrative structure evolves over time, but is, for, is the evolution of narrative structure, is that inherently a deconstruction of the previous forms. And so there's a fine line between saying that a new form deconstructs on old ones as opposed to, and becomes an, becomes just human beings learning and playing with things and trying new yeah. things. And, and being creative. So, yeah. Exactly. Like, and yeah, and so there is the question of, is, is the deconstruction a deconstruction because it's a new form or is it a deconstruction of something old because of, reje- of a rejection of some principle? And and there's you know T. S. Eliot is trying new things, almost in almost in service of the old principles rather than because he's rejecting some old principle. Mm, that's I right. Think he's just spoke, to said a lot of just convoluted things, but no, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, in a lot of ways, the Victorian novel was hugely constricted because the the author was limited to that one viewpoint, that one narrative perspective, and and of course it. Dickens and Bronze play around with that too. And, and there are moments where you can't fully trust the authoritative omniscient narrator because that that narrator has opinions. <laughs> I mean, yeah, all of Dickens' right. narrators have opinions. So uh, yeah, there's a there's a, a more last. there's kind of a freedom to what Alkin Kloss is doing here. Um, I, I, go on. Do you do you feel like I feel like Alkin Kloss is doing this in the vein of Eliot? Like he's not deconstructing the Victorian novel. He's, he's adopting the, the deconstruct, you know, the, what other people have done as a deconstruction of that. Um, Do you think we but, should define some terms a, here? <laughs> yeah, I don't know, probably, but I, well, let me ask, let me ask this question. Actually, I, this would be an interesting question to post on the close reads and see what other, what the other people who are following along think, because I feel like, I feel like, when I read a section by somebody like Griscom or Amy or Cordelia, like I, I feel like that's not true. Like when they say something about Frank Prescott, I think I recognize that that's not true. I don't know why I know it's not true, but I have, I have what I believe to be a, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Cause it's not a discursive. I think you're talking about a discursive. Well, 
I don't have like I don't have a discursive knowledge of Frank, but I have this. Um, I'm going to borrow James Taylor's term. If this help, I don't know how helpful it is, but I have like a poetic knowledge and a, mm. a, an emotional, experiential knowledge of of Frank from the book. That when I encounter something that I think misrepresents him, I feel like I recognize that misrepresenting him. Mm. And and it doesn't mean and and for me that doesn't mean like every negative thing upset about Frank is wrong because. I don't feel that way. Like, especially some of the stuff about the childhood from like Horace, I feel like I like Horace represents Frank pretty well. Um, and so even the negative stories that he tells about Frank, I, I accept those as part of the, as part of who Frank well, you're, is. You're but accept- then there's things that there's things that Griscom and Cordelia say, and I'm like, no, that can't be mm-hmm. true. So it's almost like, it's almost like he's showing us that we can know truth, but it's not always going to be this, discursive propositional statement that I can make. I right, can't say Frank equals X. Yes, I can't do it. It requires a certain amount of faith. That um, Chaucer does this in the Canterbury Tales as well, that the uh, the authorities are kind of called into question and then the reader has to be discerning. Hmm. So it does demand more of the reader. Um, well, think- the thing we're battling against in this novel, I think, is materialism, egotism, and this this kind of like a sort of political expediency of people like Griscom, who think that um, Prescott is is simply a, a kind of a, a, like an empty sculpture that you can put on a pedestal for the world to see, and you can fill it up with whatever you like. And I, I think Sylvester says that at one point. He says something like, um, "Oh yeah," he says, bottom of page one six nine. You can't get away from the fact that he's a magnificent example. And Brian's like, of what? Yeah. And he says, well, of, any, of anything, Christian ethics, if you like, or something else, you know. He's <laughs> just, it's just, you know, we've got someone to pin it on. Mm. And, um, and obviously Prescott is opposed to that. And, and you're right, Matt, the reader knows that too. Well, I think what you're getting at, though, I, I, I kind of jokingly said it's an order of operations, but... I also kind of mean that because what happens is the novelist through the perspective of, of Brian and through what he introduces early on, he, he offers us the, the sort of principles by which we're going to understand the novel. So early on, we are, we're told certain things about Prescott and we're given certain realities about him. And our primary point of view is through Brian and those, are, and so we accept, we kind of accept the book on those terms early on. It's why, for example, we're told certain things about Harriet early on. And we believe those things. We accept those things because they're from the perspective of Brian. We, we Brian, yeah. Brian respects her, kind of loves her, mm. really. And so mm. we feel the same way about her. And thus, when Cordelia says things about her that are c- counter to that, we, we sense that she is not telling the truth because we have accepted what the novelist has told us early on. And so while, while the perspective, while there is a sort of modern you know, narrative structure to this, the novel is still operating by giving us certain narrative principles, you know, certain, certain, uh, you know, it's an order of operations, I guess we're told certain things up front and then everything else follows on, follows on that. And so we see everything else through that lens. That's why it's so important that we get Brian first, that he's kind of our primary voice, that he's interpreting everything because otherwise it's chaos. You know, he is the, the sort of formal, he, he is, if you think about it in terms of poetry, he is say, you know, he's the person who we you know see this the uh meter through <laughs> he's sort of, the of the and he's a man of faith as well isn't he mm. yeah 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 I, yes i think that's searching, true but he's I, faithful 
I, I agree, but I also think that we know when Brian is overstating something. Mm. Like, like, like it's true that it's true that Brian's view of the, the Prescotts is my primary understanding of them. But I, but I, I feel like I do know, or I feel, I feel like I know. Anyways, I don't know that I, I know that I know, but I feel like I know, even when, even when Brian is saying something that's like, well, yeah, okay, that's that's temper that a little bit. So somehow, I, that's, I guess that's the question that I want to know. I want to ask, like you guys, but and the and the maybe somebody when this is up and somebody who's listening to it, one of those, one of the listeners can post this. But do people feel like they know Frank Prescott? And they know when he's being misrepresented by somebody or, or those are two different questions though. Everything a mystery. Are they? Well, it's not all a mystery. It can't be a candidate. If we go with a detective novel trope, the, the thing that makes it tense and exciting is that there is something to be discovered at the end, that the crime will be solved. And I think Alkenklos does give us that hope that, uh, that Prescott is not just the kind of the hollow man of, of Eliot's poem, that he is substantial. Um, yes. That he's living in a world of people who do subscribe to the idea that men are essentially hollow and it's just about how much stuff you can get and how much power you can get and how many people you can manipulate. Um, but but it, Prescott stands against that. It feels very much like... Um, Maybe, maybe, maybe I would change the analogy from the from the murder or the mystery novel mm. to this. But I, I wonder if I want to change it to. It feels very much like a platonic dialogue to me. Like I yeah. know, or you it's want to change world. the metaphor to a platonic dialogue. Yes, mm. I that's think how Prescott teaches. It's kind of on brand. It is kind of how he does it. Yeah, mm. <laughs> right. Like the two are that different. Um, good point. David, because at the beginning of the of the of a dialogue, I know what justice is. I mean, Socrates assures me, whatever. Like, I I I know what justice is, even though I can't always say it. And part of the the joy or whatever the the purpose, the reason it for reading it is to ensure me or to ensure myself that justice is substantial, that it's not a hollow man, and that I'm gonna be able to think about it and even talk about it with a little bit, a little bit more clarity, a little bit more depth, a little bit more discursively as it were. Um, And that's what Frank Prescott is for me because Frank Prescott's the stand in for God probably. And I'm really Mm. just trying to figure out God. So if we, so is the idea then that if we, if we reject truth, we're not just rejecting truth as a principle, but we're rejecting the truth that I already have that written in my soul. Well, we'd have to. I mean, we yeah. reject it. We'd have to reject that also. I can't well, I, it on my soul if it's not real. Well, yeah, I, right. Um, Although I can reject that it's written on my soul, but not reject that it's real. That I guess that's but, what I was saying. But yeah. the other way, I can't do. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah, I said it wrong. I said my question wrong. As I, <laughs> and then I was trying to fix it, and I was like, "Wait, what did I say?" <laughs> <laughs> so what? So then, I guess my question is: Given what I just didn't say, but meant to say, um, <laughs> what what is this? Is this book? Which of those two ideas is this book after? Is is the book saying something about rejection of truth generally, or rejection of the people reject the idea that it's in there, written on their soul? I think the latter, particularly because of the 
presentation of Griscom. Go on. Yeah, go on. Well, his his ability to be manipulated by a 16-year-old and to capitulate for the sake of his own expediency that he sees in, is he called Tanager? What's the name of the boy with the trot? Yeah, Tanager. He sees, he sees him as a potential future client. And because um, Griscom, it says in the novel, believes that paradise is on this earth where it should be, he's not aspiring to anything greater. Um, and his house is full of um, furniture, which is manufactured, and it's a replica, none of it's original. And there's a sense that for all of Griscom's beliefs in material reality, he's still shown to be unsatisfied because he's so he's so fixated by a character like Prescott. I don't know if I made any sense there, but I think Griscom is shown to be kind of hypocritical or, or not, inauthentic, yeah. conflicted. Yeah, inauthentic, just like his furniture. Yeah. Yeah, and in the end, you know, he's he's kind of comes to Brian for advice about his family and and Brian, who has nothing really in terms of his material wealth apart from his little portrait of Samuel Richardson, is is full of of kind of rich riches really that Griscom will never have, even though he's got all this this material wealth. Do you, do you think that's why Griscom likes Cordelia as the better sister, because she she presents. Or as a, as the better daughter, I guess she presents a Prescott that is not real. And so mm-hmm. then, so then he he would be the architect of Frank Prescott that we know. Like it makes it possible for Griscom to be the chief architect of the Frank Prescott legend. But if Frank Prescott is what the other daughters say, then he's not the architect of the legend. Frank Prescott is the legend. Mm, that's right. Yeah, I think guys- so. I'm- and because Cordelia is living off um, a divorce settlement as well, isn't she? So she she's kind of got this material comfort um, that she's sold out to um, a kind of affluence, which has enabled her to perpetuate her immoral lifestyle. Hmm. It's not something that she's earned. She's inverted Lear completely in every regard. Yeah. <laughs> she's what? She's inverted the play, oh, King Lear, oh, yeah, in yeah. every regard. Yeah. You guys just both said something. We, we got to go, but I, I need to bring this up. Um, you, you, at, the, at the same time, you were commenting about, I guess, I guess, Griscom. And one of you said the word inauthentic, and the other said conflicted at basically the same time. <laughs> so now I've got in my head this question of, is to be inauthentic the same thing? Like, are, are those the same thing? You almost use them, like you were answering a question, you kind of described the character, one of you as inauthentic, one of you as conflicted. So there's a lot of characters in this book who are kind of conflicted and also inauthentic at the same time. So now I'm thinking, is to be conflicted to be inauthentic, inauthentic or is inauthentic to be conflicted? Or is that, is, or maybe it's just pure nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> But you if guys are honest about your conflict conflictedness, then yeah. it's not inauthentic. But these guys are pretending they're not conflicted yeah, and therefore right. are inauthentic, right? Whereas Brian is honest about all of the doubts and worries and contradictions that he experiences. Um, and Horace, too, I think, is mm. well, he might not even be conflicted. I don't know. Let me think about that one some more. But he's he's confident in who he is. 
Mm. I think. Couldn't, couldn't you? But these guys are all nuts. If you wanted to, though, couldn't you argue that the very nature of, like, if you're conflicted about something that you feel that you might may or may not believe in, if you're conflicted about some kind of truth or about who you are or something, couldn't you say that that's sort of, that, that if you believe in truth as a fundamental reality, that that is being inauthentic in a, a sense, like inherently, a, a, given that there is some sort of essence to either you or to the thing that you believed in or something like that. Hmm. Uh, is there a character that you think really illustrates that in this novel? Well, I'm actually, I was thinking, I was wondering about, um, if to me, we've, we've talked a lot about the inauthenticity, inauthenticity and the conflicted nature of a lot of these, what I would argue are tertiary characters, but mm-hmm. what about Brian and, 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 uh, Frank themselves? Because mm-hmm. are, there are, it seems like there are lots of moments when both of them are conflicted and in those conflicted moments, are they conflicted or are they being inauthentic? Are, is there their confliction itself, the conflictedness itself in those moments, moments of inauthenticity given who they are fundamentally, like in their essence and the truths that they're, that they sort of inherently do believe in or are pursuing. I think that Prescott is sometimes um, inauthentic when he's being charming. Um, and he's, he's not fundamentally a charming person. No, but he's able to do it. And he says he's like Griscom's dancing bear. And there are times when he will act according to principles of expediency in order to raise money for Justin Marshall. Goes back to the Broadway thing. Yeah. Yeah. And later at the end of the, the novel, there's an image of him as a clown fleeing from the spotlight, which ties in very well with Leah, I think. Um, but then mm. the other thing about Prescott that is so endearing, I suppose, is how candid and honest he is. On page 144, he says, um, no matter how much the conception of a school may be one's own, sooner or later, if it has any use, any currency, it is bound to pass into the public domain. We can keep only our failures. And for all his idealism, Prescott realizes that their utility can come into conflict with that. And, and he realizes that there's sometimes a need for this kind of utilitarianism that despite himself, he has to acknowledge. That's interesting. So you, you see Prescott as inauthentic when he's setting aside his ideals for, or the ideals for utility. Mm. But I think Amy well, how how would Amy see his inauthenticity? Is it would it be the flip? Like, what is she seeing behind the scenes that everything, even the ideal Frank Prescott, the ideals that Frank Prescott, they're just he, it's all just an act. Yeah, I think she's wrong. Yeah, yeah. Because I do too. I, I do too. I think yeah. The author of the play, well, the play, the game of Justin Martyr, is her father, and Griscom is not the author of Justin Martyr. Except, except when he, when Frank is willing to take on the utilitarian, except for when he's the dancing bear, which makes you you right. I think, right. That is when he feels to us the most inauthentic. Mm. In in those moments, he has, he's less concerned or he's not pursuing what Sarah Jane, what you called earlier, I think his his mission or something like that. And instead Mm. he's pursuing Griscom's project. project. They're they're not even Mm. working on the same thing anymore. He's not, he may, I mean, that's where maybe his, his, he becomes, he's acting in service of 
conflicted, conflicting uh, purposes. It's either Griscom's project or it's you know his own mission or his own calling or his vocation or whatever. And in those moments, they're conflicting with one another. They're intersecting, and he's having to balance those. Yeah. He's having to balance those two per- pursuits that Hi. don't really intercede. Go ahead. Can I draw your attention to something that Harriet says? And she's described by, I think it's by Griscom, as one of the the most shrewd judge of character in the novel. And she says that the the fundamental kind of issue that her husband has is that he confuses Justin Martyr and himself. The two get mixed up. And so the thing that adds complexity here is that Harriet tells Brian, no, Harriet tells Griscom, that Prescott will come on board with his idea to to increase the number of pupils at the school from 200 to 400, because that is his ambition. And uh, I think that adds a complexity and that maybe Prescott is more conflicted than than we realise or than we think, because he obviously has this ambition and he wants to be one of the great headmasters of New England and he scoffs at the pedestal that Griscom wants to put him on, but then he also kind of quite likes being on that pedestal. And yeah, that's one forty-seven. Yeah. So which I, of those sides of him is more inauthentic? <laughs> like, is 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 it inauthentic when you're like? I'm not saying don't take. I'm not making a value judgment here, but is is when you're when his when his passions or his baser ambitions drive him? Is that him being? inauthentic to him or like or is he just being conflicted (laughs) maybe our definition of of um kind of human or or the personal authenticity is needs pinning down because yeah i was authentic doesn't mean that that any human being can can always be right and perfect and true (laughs) because we're all so broken so right authenticity is, is actually our massive contradictions that we are and I don't yeah, I guess that's why I'm saying that maybe inauthenticity and conflictedness are in some ways tied together. They're one and the same. Like, yes, that's right. I, I do like to believe in truth. Yeah, I, I do like David, your point. I mean, your initial go at a, I guess a definition, but the idea that inauthenticity is when we are going away from what we're supposed to be, I think is the word you, you used mm-hmm. or, or yeah. something like that. Right. That, something essential that like, so like when, when, when Shakespeare has Hamlet say um, to his mother, you know, assume the virtue until it comes. That's mm-hmm. not inauthentic. Oh yeah. It, assume a virtue if you have it not. That's actually quoted in this novel as well. Is it really? Yeah. I, I missed it or I don't remember it or did I not get through that? Uh, it was in the first five chapters. I think Horace oh, says it. Yeah. I probably, I probably marked it. Well, anyways, it's just it. Sounds like a yeah, it would be. <laughs> um, the uh, but that like that idea, right? That 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 like today, most people today would probably think that that's being inauthentic to mm-hmm. pretend that you're something that you're not. Mm-hmm. Like inauthentic. Yago. I am not what I am. Yago says. Yeah. Yeah. Which well, is really yeah, close you to just the read that recently. So that's yeah, you got you got to want to. I don't I don't remember it. I don't remember Othello that well. So Sorry, I need, <laughs> I need to read it again. But yeah, I guess right. There now, are a I'll take your word podcast that will help you as you read through it. I just want to <laughs> what? <laughs> no. <laughs> um, <laughs> but that, like that idea, like to me, that's huge. Is that we 
we mis we misunderstand inauthentic. And and I think that's what Amy's doing, right? Amy's thinking. I can see behind the scenes. I, I'm the stagehand. I know what's going on mm-hmm. and I know what, it, what authentic and inauthentic is or whatever. I know the real, the real men behind the scenes, but I think inauthentic is when, is what you guys are saying, right? That's when you're, when you're not doing what you ought to be not. And, and, and so maybe, maybe the conflict for Frank is that, yeah, he's ambitious and he wants to build, he wants Justin to be a bigger school, a greater school and, whatever, but, but, but wanting that and not wanting to do it via the Griscom project Mm. are not contradictory, right? That's Mm -hmm. true. Mm -hmm. And I also like the fact that Griscom's way gets called the project. (laughs) He refers to it that way three or four times himself, I think. And um, when he presents it to his partner, who's called, isn't his partner called Prime? Yes. Um, His father-in-law. That's it. And he says to Griscom, oh, yes, well, you should do it because, you know, it's going to be advantageous to you. Yeah. And, yeah. and Griscom tries to say, no, it's not, advertise. not really about that. <laughs> but of course, it is really about that. It's about that, but it might not be about growing his law practice, which is what his father's concerned with. But it's still about the same thing. You know, the growth of the law practice, it's just, you know, you're just calling it something else. It's just you're naming it differently. Mm. So so what? So God can owe him? Or sorry, so Frank can owe him? So I confused God and Frank there for a second. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and Justin Martyr can owe him. So you also mm. Justin Martyr and Frank are also confused, aren't they? It's all right, all right. <clears throat> we can take one for seven. Frank is ambitious, you know, for himself and the school, though they're sometimes confused. Well. Yeah, but at the same time, you look at the early chapters about Frank's own, you know, when he's having this crisis of faith and he's not, you know, the school is born out of the resolution of his crisis of faith. Yeah. Um, and so that's, that's sort of, it, it's interesting to me that at the essential, like at, at the, in the, within the roots of the school is a question of doubt is the sort of pursuit of truth, but it's asking questions. It's, it's, uh, you know, working out doubts i guess that's at the core of of the school and it seems like in some ways um whether he means to or not frank you know he's sort of trying to preserve it as a place that is both a place where doubts can be worked out and you can ask questions and you can have discussions about those sorts of things and also a place that is firmly rooted in very specific truths and that in and of itself is sort of a uh, dichotomy that's like both um, very hard to live out and and then and opens it up to a lot of um, challenges like because if you're gonna le- if you're gonna make it a place where people can have those kind of conversations then it's going to be a place where people are going to have those kind of conversations mm-hmm. which is going to be a dangerous thing there's a great moment on page 166 where Griscom gives us his sort of uh, method for dealing with doubt if you like where he says um Oh, <laughs> yeah. He says the only thing to do with a doubt, to paraphrase Oscar Wilde, is to give in to it. <laughs> but afterwards, one mustn't just mope. What are you going to do? He's a utilitarian. So, yeah, what do you make of that? How he, he cites Sounds Oscar pretty Wilde. English to me. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect, Chriscom. Yeah. He, he appeals to a materialist for some kind of moral authority. <laughs> yeah, Oscar Wilde of all people. <laughs> right. 
Was Oscar Wilde a lawyer? Please tell me he was a lawyer. Uh, before his literary career. Yeah. He did. He went to Trinity College, Maudlin. Are you on Wikipedia again, David? <laughs> <laughs> Spoken like a tutor at Eaton College. Uh, no, I'm just, that, I would just love it if Griscom is like his great literary, you know, muse or influence was also someone who trained to be a lawyer. That would be so on brand for him. We probably should uh, start wrapping things up because we've been going for an hour and a half. So let's, um, we didn't talk about the way um, Frank leads lessons, but we will get to that at some point. We did um, sort of because true, true. Um, you, you did talk about um, platonic dialogue and that is kind of how Frank teaches. Yeah. And, and there is that scene, you know, I mentioned he, it's a place where, you know, the kids can push back and there is that scene where he allows this kid to keep pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing. Um, what's that in eight, maybe chapter eight. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, you know, he kind of says, well, you know, I guess I let you get to that point in the conversation, you know, um, we've preserved, we've let this be a place where you can do that. And, you know, it's not always going to work out the way, the, the best way, you know, um, but I, I, we should look at kind of on a micro level, some of those, we should look at that scene at some point and maybe the Q and a episode, but with that in mind, Matt, do you have any final thoughts, anything you were looking for, looking toward, uh, in these final, in these next well, few chapters? Two episodes ago, I said that I was looking to see if Frank's view of what it means to be a man modifies. Mm. And the, the only the only thing that I saw in these in this last two readings was the um, the introduction of the tennis courts, and he credits that or blames that on Brian, right? So there's this sense in which he, I mean, there, there appears to be a very a very clear demonstration of he's willing to change a rule because because of Brian's influence that maybe he does see um, masculinity as having a softer, gentler side, like that being okay, perhaps. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if, if allowing tennis classes is proof of that, but it's pointing, it's opening, it's cracking the door for us, right? Um, Back and Rose's soft and gentle side was brought out by tennis. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Right. Um, but you're of tennis. I, the big thing for me, though, is still like, I think, I mean, I just want to keep seeing this, but I think that, I think, I think Frank, I think we know who Frank is and we can, I mean, we, we would argue over whether we should or should not agree with certain characters on specific points, but I think we generally know when, uh, like, I, I feel like, I, I feel like when Harriet says that he wants a bigger Justin and that he has that kind of ambition, like I was totally on board with that. Yep. That makes sense to me. Mm. But then when Cordelia, I don't, you know, you see other things, it's like, no, no, stop it. Just stop it. He's gone too far. Hmm. So I don't know. I'm going to keep reading for that and see see if I'm proved wrong that there is this big shocking surprise that that Frank is not the man I thought he was. Sarah Jane, what about you? What are you looking for? Uh, there's an interesting idea of courage that's been going on in the background of the novel for a long time, um, which was brought up again by Charlie on page 198. 189, sorry. Mm. Um, that, and you you said it in our first oh. episode, that Prescott has, has never had the chance to fight in a war. And it's, it's almost a sense that he wanted to in some ways in order to test his valor because he hasn't had a chance to do that. 
Um, but Charlie sees it in him and says, no, you, you don't need to worry about courage because you've got it. So I'd like to see how, how courageous is Prescott. Mm. Going that's, forward. that's good. Cause I wonder too, like, how does, um, how does Griscom's advice to Brian fit in with that? Right. Mm. Like Brian says, I don't want to go work for this freedom first foundation because you know, I'm a 4F. I can't tell people to go fight in this war when I'm not what is able a 4F? myself. It basically means you're not physically fit or qualified or healthy oh, enough okay. to be a soldier. Because of his heart murmur. Yeah, so there's, it's just a code, a medical code that they... Right. But it was popular in the... I mean, it became part of common parlance in, during wartime. Uh, although probably most Americans wouldn't know it today, or younger Americans wouldn't know it today, but it was an American term, I think. Anyway, um, yeah, so so... But then he says, like, no, there's a way for you to, like, your, your act of valor or courage, I don't know if he uses, I don't think he uses those words, but your way of being brave is to, is to do this in spite of that, right? Like, mm. although, although that whole thing is, that whole section is kind of oily for me because I feel like when he should have been telling Brian to work through the doubt, he told Brian to give in to the doubt. Mm. And I think he did that because he wanted the author of this book under his thumb, mm. you know? Yep. Absolutely. All right. Well, really selfish. everyone who's listening, thank you so much. As always, don't forget, you can post your questions uh, on the Facebook group. You can get in touch with us on Instagram and on Twitter at close reads pods. And of course you can email, as I said, at close reads podcast at gmail.com. Uh, we, I say this every now and then, you know, I got to bring it up periodically, but um, if you would, we would appreciate it if you would, you know, go on whatever app you're listening to and leave us a review for the podcast um, and uh, let us know how we're doing. Help us spread the word a little bit. Um, I try not to mention it every time, but every now and then I, I you know, like to bring it up before we sign off. So uh, as always, we are very appreciative of everyone who's been listening and who, who does spread the word and tell your friends and all of our, all of our loyal listeners are, are wonderful. And uh, it's an it's honor to be able to talk about books. Um, with you and you know unfortunately sometimes at you <laughs> but uh thank you for participating in the conversation of course and of course matt sarah jane thanks for joining thanks for joining us uh joining me and um uh, you know i've really enjoyed these conversations we've gone long every episode which which uh means that we're having a good time so <laughs> thank you yeah thanks yeah it's really fascinating next week we will discuss chapters 13 through 18 so uh you know be reading and uh we will be We'll be ready to go, clearly, uh, for, the, for the next episode. For Sarah Jane and for Matt, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. And uh, we'll talk to you next week. In the meantime, happy reading. Mm-hmm.